Today's episode of InVibe Life Conversations podcast is sponsored by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. It's everything that you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I do think masks can be extremely effective, you know, trying to do socially distancing type things when we can, trying to do outdoor activities when we can. Um, so all those things are, are I think, preferential and, and help prevent the spread big time. That's still probably our greatest um, protection from, from causing bigger outbreaks. Um, and then I think it's looking at um, certainly, you know, hopefully one day we'll have things like a good vaccine to help um, deliver to the, you know, the general public and everybody that will hopefully help protect us as well. Um, you know, as far as other preventative things, I think that still remains to be seen. I do think treatments are starting to get a little bit better as far as how we deal with the disease and uh, when people do get sick. Um, and perhaps even things like masks might be decreasing the amount of spread going to people. So even when they do get exposed or um, sick with it, they may be not getting as sick because they're not getting as much of an exposure as they were before. Um, so there is something to the amount of virals. Welcome to the InVibe Live podcast with Amy Parker and Cheryl Dunn. By tuning in, you are joining a community that will inspire you to increase balance, wellness, and joy in your life. We'll offer expert information and insightful conversations to help us all on our journey to live more in vibe. For more information and articles, remember to also check out our website at invibelife.com. That's E-N-V-I-B-E-L-I-F-E.com. And we're grateful that you're here. Welcome to the In Vibe Life podcast with Amy Parker and Cheryl Dunn. We're here today with Dr. Jeff Yorio. Um, Dr. Yorio is an oncologist with Texas Oncology in Austin, Texas. And since, I don't know, Dr. Yorio, you, you'll be able to tell us, but somewhere close to the beginning of COVID, you started using your sort of keen research and analytical skills to compile actual numerical data on COVID trends you were seeing in our community and post those on Facebook. And you've developed a little bit of a following by doing that. Has that surprised you? Um, yeah, a little bit. Uh, you know, I think way back in March, we didn't have a lot of uh, data out there, um, you know, about our local community. So I, I sort of put together some small graphs to, to try to reflect some of the way that we look at the national, you know, scope and how that would look in Austin. And, and so I started doing that. And I guess it gained a little bit of traction amongst some of the physician groups I was in. So then it started to gain kind of this bigger uh, bigger traction on social media. So yeah, it was a little surprising to, to see it pick up like that, but um, it's been, uh, you know, good to be involved with and, and kind of my goal has always just been to, to try to, to talk about facts and uh, lay them out there the best I, I can interpret them and uh, not necessarily try to influence people one way or the other, but just trying to um, tell, tell the story of what's going on. And, and, you know, as a doctor, I've certainly, um, had to deal with COVID-19 in our community and have become heavily involved with that to some extent um, throughout the throughout this whole process and throughout the pandemic. 
And so to me, it's a, the virus is extremely a real thing we have to be concerned about. At the same time, uh, you know, dealing with some of the ramifications of, of what has happened in society and how do we deal with that and where do we, where do we find that balance? And so that's kind of why I've tried to keep up with that message as much as I could and hope, hope that coming from a, a, you know, a doctor in the local community that that could be helpful. Yeah, I think that's fabulous. And I, and I think that's why you grew so much popularity mm-hmm. is because your intention there of uh, just giving the facts, not telling people what to do. They can, with the facts, they can choose their own life with that. And um, that you're trying to just give people some balance of what's really going on. And I, I Speaking of balance. Yeah, you might not know it, but balance is um, the whole backbone of InVibe Life. We mm-hmm. really try and help people find balance in their daily lives. So it was awesome that you brought that up right off the bat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In so, fact, I think, why don't we back up for just a second and hear a little bit about who you are, Dr. Yorio. Um, I know you've had an interesting pathway into the practice of medicine in general. We'd love to hear about that. And then just tell us um, what you're doing now, what your areas are now, so our audience will know where you're coming from. Sure. So, um, so yeah, you know, actually, uh, I went to the University of Texas here in Austin. I grew up in uh, uh, near Fort Worth, so in a town called Burleson, just south of Fort Worth, and so native Texan. And uh, and at UT, I was a you know creative advertising major, so that was my what I graduated in, and moved off to New York to be a copywriter at uh, an ad agency and worked for a few years. And um, and as I was doing that, I I kind of felt it wasn't something I could see myself doing the rest of my life. And uh, so I started to have to look at what are, what other things I would be interested in, and um, and I'd always had a connection with science. My my dad's a scientist, and so I'd always uh, you know done things with him to some extent when I, growing up, and and so um, so that kind of drew me back, and I I, I like the idea of having that kind of personal connection with patients and being able to help people in that manner, um, a little bit different from what I was doing uh, in my other career. So, so that's what sort of drove me to uh, transition um, to go to medical school. Not a lot of people go from advertising to medical school. I uh, so like, <laughs> probably had to play catch up a little bit there, did you? That's right. I went, I actually came back to UT for about a year because I had to do a bunch of uh, my pre-medical requirements. I, and then, um, and then we moved to Dallas uh, and uh, I was at UT Southwestern for medical school and for internal medicine residency. Um, and then did my fellowship uh, in Houston at MD Anderson for for oncology and hematology. Great! Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot. Yeah, yeah. Little did I know when I made the switch, it'd take about you know ten to I guess eleven years for me to to go through all that process of tr- of school and training. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, it had to have been a true calling for you to make that commitment. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I'm. I've always been happy with making that change and uh, couldn't imagine myself doing anything else uh, now. Awesome. Awesome. That's great. So talk about what's going on with COVID in Austin right now. Amy and I, I have two kids that are in the classroom. They went back, I guess it's been three or four weeks now. Mm-hmm. And um, Amy has well, I have two in college, one in Colorado, one at UT, and then um, one in high school. But the high school are still Zooming. Yesterday right? was the first day in okay. person. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
So it's something we've been following from that perspective, just as mommies in the community, really, and what's going on. But um, I know that you've been really, I think, combining your medical expertise, your analytical nature, research background with your ability, I'm sure, through advertising to present information in a way that people can understand and interpret. So, yeah, tell us a little bit um, about what the current state of affairs is in Austin, Texas, and it's October 14th today. This will um, publish, you know, a few days delayed, but in the middle of October, where does Austin, Texas stand? Sure. So, you know, of course, we had a pretty... um you know, at the beginning of this pandemic in the spring, Austin and, and most of Texas did okay. And of course, we were really shut down during those times. And then, um, you know, we really experienced this big wave of COVID-19 in the summer, um, you know, June through August. And uh, that was really our, our peak times. And of course, we saw our, our hospitals kind of fill up with patients a lot at that time with COVID-19. And and fortunately, what we've seen over the last few months is things have really kind of settled back down to to more of a, a plateau, I'd say, um, a manageable plateau with cases. And, you know, on average, we're seeing uh, l- less than about 100 cases per day. And the amount of people in the hospitals here in Austin have been less than 100, you know, with COVID-19, really for the last month or so. Total. Um, I mean, total hospitalization. Total hospitalization. Yeah, total people in the hospital at any, you know, given time with, with COVID-19. So mm-hmm. sort of thinking... Um, somebody occupying a hospital bed because, you know, that was always one of our big worries. If you've got, if you've got a thousand, if we have a thousand beds in the Austin area and, uh, you know, 800 of them are occupied by COVID-19 patients, that's a, that's a troublesome problem to have. It was Um, scary at the beginning. Yeah. Correct. And so, um, so it's definitely been more manageable in in that respect. Um, The, and and numbers have come down quite a bit, you know, maybe over the last week or so we're, we're seeing a slight trend upwards and hospitals hospitalizations and things like that still nothing near what we you know nothing too bad quite yet so it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few months but so this summer did we hit close to 800 covid patients in our our thousand beds uh and, and i use those kind of as rough numbers we have more than a thousand beds in the austin area okay, i wasn't sure i wasn't sure <laughs> I just kind of threw out threw out some numbers there. I actually don't, off the top of my head, I don't know how many true hospital beds we have in Austin. Okay. Um, but, but we had a high percentage of folks. And so, yeah, you know, at its, gosh, at its peak, we had over almost 500 people with COVID-19 occupying hospital beds in Austin. Hi. Not, not quite 500, but almost we got to that level in the Austin area. And so that was a pretty, pretty major amount. Cause you had, um, what, what happens then is then our normal, you know, normal hospitalizations, you know, our, our occupancy rates are probably in the 70 to 85 percent ranges, you know. And so when you have a whole new disease that's taking up 30 to 40 percent of the hospital, then all those things that we normally would use a hospital before um, get pushed out, you know. And um, and so that was that's always been one of the big worries with COVID-19 is how, how it could overwhelm the hospital system. And, uh, and I think that's what we saw early on in the pandemic in, in Italy or in New York and those type of places um, where it just overwhelmed these hospital systems because things happen so quickly and, and so fast. And, and kind of some of the ramifications we're seeing of, of those type of issues are what happens to the people that are having heart attacks and strokes and um, 
those type of things because those diagnoses started to go down because they weren't getting admitted to the hospital or weren't were too scared to come to the hospital. So I do think there there's been some ramifications with that. And and we've seen, I know some of our cardiology colleagues have talked about um, how the number of admissions for heart attacks went down pretty dramatically during the spring and, and somewhat in the summer. And, um, and that's worrisome because typically those diseases don't just disappear. They're still happening. They're just not showing up and getting the care they necessarily need. And, and as an oncologist, we've seen some of that um, certainly where we know that screening during the, the sort of spring and summer went drastically down. Something like the, you know, the amount of screening going on for breast cancer or colon cancer um, went down dramatically. And actually there was some publications which showed that the incidence of kind of the six major types of cancers went down by almost 50% during the spring in the United States, which is crazy because that doesn't mean there wasn't cancer. The cancers are still happening. It's just, they're not getting diagnosed. And so, um, so we've certainly seen that in our practice where our kind of new diagnoses of cancer weren't, we weren't seeing the same levels we normally see, which just means they're going undiagnosed. So that was uh, also a worrisome thing um, that happened with, with everything with the pandemic. And, and so, um, so I think we have to try to figure out how we, how we make, how do we balance all that out, look back to balance and how do we live with this? How do we live with this virus and try to figure out how to make things like hospitals work? And clinics work and still get people necessary medical care for for both COVID-19 and for uh, um, for all the other diseases we normally deal with. Do you think it's a little better? Do you think people are feeling more confident in being able to come in and keep up their routine screenings now? I do. I think um, I think what we've learned is safe ways to to help run clinics um, and uh, different medical facilities to try to limit exposures, you know, for people, try to make it a safer environment for people to come in and uh, be able to receive that care. And I think people are definitely starting to feel more and more comfortable with that and, and you know, either coming to the hospital or coming into clinics to do those type of things. Um, and of course, we've, we've helped with using things like telemedicine. So we were very early adapters of telemedicine in our practice. And I know a lot of people around town were as well. And that's helped um, us just kind of offset the number of actual people that come into clinic on a daily basis um, by using some of these visits that we can with telemedicine. We can do those so they're not actually having to come physically to clinic. And then the people that have to come physically here, um, they, they're still able to. And it's a little safer because the, the number of people here are not quite as much. So, so I do feel like most of the medical practices in the community um, have done a really great job of of offering protection to both both staff and to patients, you know, around town. So I feel like people can, you know, feel like they're going to be safe coming in to do those things. Well, I want to, I want to spend a little more time, like, let's shout that out to everyone. We, we just, um, Cheryl and I just interviewed a friend of ours a couple of days ago, who's a breast cancer survivor, you know, it's breast cancer awareness month. And in telling her story, um, part of her story was she had just one year she didn't have her mammogram and it was that year. And, you know, we've been in this for seven or eight months now. So that really, I think alarmed all of us when we sort of had that check or realization. So I know it's made me kind of go back down my list of what have I put aside and and what have I kept up with appropriately? Cause you kind of think a few months, no, it's just a few months, but a few months can be a big deal. It's, it's true. It's, you know, it's one of those things. It's a, it's a, 
it's not a big deal until it is a big deal. And um, so, uh, and so, you know, that's why I think it's important to really try to keep up with these things because they are definitely ways to, to catch a diagnosis early or, you know, with, um, with colonoscopies to, to pr- pr- potentially prevent even cancers from occurring. Um, and certainly with breast cancer, mammograms will, will help catch things early or catch precancerous type lesions that maybe we can prevent something else from happening. So, um, so I think it's certainly important to still keep up with those screenings. And, and unfortunately, it's one of those things that got pushed off a lot during this year um, because of everything else going on. So. And, and we're starting to see some of those ramifications in practice where um, people are probably getting diagnosed a little later than they normally would with certain types of cancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. So I, what I find interesting is UT started back in the classroom late August, I would say. I might not be mm-hmm. accurate on that date. But UT has been back some virtual, some classroom, depending on what students are signed up for. And I know that they let 25% in to go see the football games after they got a a negative COVID test. So we haven't seen a huge, from my knowledge, it doesn't seem like there's been a huge amount of cases at the university, which we did kind of expect that that might happen. So what do you think's going on? And you might have, you might know better that there are a lot of cases in the IDOF. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think it's always tough to track some of these things. I know you probably those first months of UT being back, I think UT kind of had a little bit of a surge of cases that they saw, um, but certainly not to the, the big, big extent that maybe a lot of people thought were going to happen. Um, and, and so it's tricky, you know, um, so maybe, maybe they're not happening. Maybe uh, people don't always get tested because they're young and they, they get a little bit sick and they don't feel too bad. So they don't go in to get tested and, um, you know, overall, being college age, most of them are pretty healthy and, and probably probably do okay with COVID-19 as far as a sickness, you know, as far as getting sick and don't get too ill. Um, and so that's one of those things, how many people are actually getting tested or not. That's hard to always say. Um, I think the, the hopeful thing would be um, that maybe they're not interacting as much with some of the other community as large, and maybe that helps to some extent. Um, and, and hopefully a lot of safety measures that have happened, like wearing, you know, wearing masks places in classrooms or, or places they go help prevent that spread. You know, I think I think the things that we've probably seen on college campuses where, where spread has been happening has been more in stuff that's been um, kind of off campus type, type activities where you're, you know, whether it's parties or whether it's gatherings and things like that, that, um, that they're not doing things like masking and socially distancing and those things. Whereas, you know, at the football game, they're, they're mostly uh, having to wear masks and, and they're having to be outside. We're probably a little safer and the crowds are definitely much thinner than normal. So perhaps that's safer. So maybe that's why in something like the football game, uh, we're not seeing that as much. They're, they're also, for students at least, screening those, page, those people with tests before they come to the actual game. So that's um, probably preventing a lot of, you know, potential positive cases from exposing other people at somewhere like a football stadium. So um, but I think that's probably why, you know, we've seen some of that. Um, it's still, you know, it's still summer or, or fall, well now fall, but you know, feels like summer in Texas. So, um, so you can still do a lot of things outside. So I think that's still very helpful with mitigating spread with this virus. Cause you know, if you can eat outside and even attend a gathering outside, probably that spread is gonna be much less 
likely than if we're all cramped inside a small conference room or a small auditorium, things like that. And so there are a lot of different statistics that are thrown out and you yourself present the different um, metrics. What do you think is the best thing to watch? I mean, there are the infection rates, the hospitalization rates, the death rates. If, if we're just someone out there is just kind of trying to gauge how their community is doing, what's the best thing to follow? Um, I, I kind of think the hospitalization rates are probably the, the best thing to follow um, to give you a sense of what's going on with the disease as a whole. Um, because it's telling you who's getting, you know, it's telling you the population's getting exposed or getting sick enough to get in the hospital. Um, it's, it's probably the most real number we can get to, you know, it's, it's harder to fabricate hospital data on who's actually getting admitted. Yes, there's going to be an occasional patient who got admitted for something else and then was found to have COVID-19. But for the most part, most of those patients are getting admitted because of that COVID-19 diagnosis. Um, and so, so to me, that's kind of the best trend to follow because as we've seen with all the testing pros and cons, you know, there's, um, not everybody gets tests all the time, or, you know, maybe um, even with things like positivity rate, where you're actually looking at, you know, the number of positive cases per test. Well, if um, UT decides to screen 20,000 people, all of a sudden, um, that's screening 20,000 asymptomatic people. And so that um, the positivity rate might be actually very low. If we go screen, you know, um, everybody that walks into the emergency room, that's going to be probably a higher positivity rate because they're sick and walking into the emergency room. And so that's just a matter of, you know, where those tests are happening and things like that. Still an important number, but I don't think it's the, you know, I think doesn't always tell the perfect story of what's going on because um, it's based on how many tests are getting done out there or not. Um, who's going to get those tests, that type of stuff. But hospital rates, I think, are really hard to to fabricate one way or the other. And so if you look at those trends, I think that starts to tell the story. And, and what I've seen, one thing I've tried to track is just number of positive cases and hospitalization rates, you know, uh, occupancy with COVID-19. And, and the two track very closely together. So, you know, when the case numbers go up, the hospitalization rates start to go up. When the case numbers go down, the hospitalization numbers do start to go down. So it tells you, while they may say, oh, there's only 100 cases today, that may or may not be accurate. Maybe there's 200 cases that day, but, but the trend is probably the most important thing to follow. You know, is it, is it trending upwards? Is it trending downwards? And that seems to track pretty closely with hospitalization rates. Um, death rates, of course, I think are important to follow, um, but it's also, that's always going to be delayed, you know, because somebody who dies of COVID-19 is probably three, three to four weeks often after their original diagnosis. So you're, you're going to get late indicators with those death rates. Um, and also, you know, a lot of talk has been about death rates have probably gone down some over time with COVID-19. And, and a lot of that is because we've done a much better job in Austin and Texas and the United States of protecting places like nursing homes. Um, our older population that definitely has that much higher risk of, of dying from COVID-19. But do you think that really is a substantial number of the deaths nationwide at this point occurred in nursing homes? Correct. Yeah. You know, if you look at just Texas as a whole, um, they've started to publish some of this data and, and probably about a third of the deaths were probably ultimately related to nursing homes or, or, or you know, um, long-term facilities. Um, 
now there's still a lot there's still other deaths that happen out there of course um and so but that is a big portion of it and i think that's what we saw a lot in places like new york and and uh in italy when when we had the the really high death rates early on so is there a trend in the person that is being admitted to the hospital is it an age trend a race trend i even heard the blood type thing if you know yeah i mean certainly i mean i think um you know, for sure, for sure, older age, you know, people who are older who get it are much higher risk of, of having to get hospitalized. You know, if you're, if you're over 80 and you get COVID-19, your, your risk of having to be hospitalized is extremely high. Um, and so, um, and, and you start to see that go down through the decades, right? And of course, if you're, if you're 18 and you get COVID-19, extremely rare, you're going to get hospitalized, hospitalized for COVID-19. Um, but then the other risk factors, uh, obesity seems to be an extremely big risk factor. Um, and particularly people who are morbidly obese, I think their risk of hospitalization is going to be much higher. Um, and, and they have a much tougher time when they do get hospitalized, um, as far as getting over this illness. Um, and then with that, you know, probably diabetes has been a big risk factor with it. Um, and then some of these other things being immunosuppressed patients with cancer, um, uh, are, are, are also at risk. Uh, so those, those are some of those big risk factors. So it's, you know, I can, I can certainly say there are people in their forties, fifties, sixties who, who were seeing hospitalized and, and a lot of them do have some of these comorbidities. And, and the reality is, is a lot of Americans have a lot of these comorbidities out there as well. So, um, so there's, you know, many people are still susceptible to some of those risks. So that brings the next question. What can we do? I mean, is there anything you're seeing out there, you know, you hear vitamin D or, you know, other things to boost your immunities? Have you seen any evidence of any of that being beneficial or advisable? Uh, you know, I don't think we have any good hard evidence that, that those kind of things are effective or work. Um, so to me, you know, the, the best things we can do is, is decrease spread and prevent spread of the, of the virus itself. Um, and so, so those are, you know, trying to have, um, I think, I do think masks are extremely effective. I know it's been a hot debate for a long time for people. Um, and of course, early on, you know, people have to realize, um, early on in this pandemic, uh, we didn't have masks in a lot of places in the healthcare community. And we didn't know for sure that masks would be extremely effective in preventing spread of this virus either. And, and so there was a big push to try to really get masks and, and PPE to medical facilities. You know, um, I can tell you in our own clinic, we don't use masks usually on a normal basis. Right. And so we use it for a few procedures that we do on a normal basis. Um, we do it for some of our, you know, infusion nurses when they administer chemotherapy, they'll wear masks. But so that's, that, you know, that's a normal times is what I mean. Now, of course, we everybody's wearing masks all the time, but that, but initially, we didn't have that kind of supply to um, be able to give even to our own employees, let alone to say the whole world needs to wear a mask. And so that was a big, a big problem early on. And then now what you've seen is I think that can be extremely effective. Um, and, and you look at places like Asia where the, they've been able to mitigate spread a lot better than perhaps we did in the United States. Um, and that's because they're, they're, they had that a lot more readily available. And it was kind of in their culture a little bit more from some of their previous pandemics that they had or in um, virus outbreaks that they had. Um, so they were used to doing those things. And so I do think masks can be extremely effective. 
um, you know, trying to do socially distancing type things when we can, trying to do outdoor activities when we can. Um, so all, all those things are, are I think, preferential and, and help prevent the spread big time. That's still probably our greatest um, protection from, from causing bigger outbreaks. Um, and then I think it's looking at um, certainly, you know, hopefully one day we'll have things like a good vaccine to help um, deliver to the, you know, the general public and everybody that will hopefully help protect us as well. Um, you know, as far as other preventative things, I think that still remains to be seen. I do think treatments are starting to get a little bit better as far as how we deal with the disease and uh, when people do get sick. Um, and perhaps even things like masks might be decreasing the amount of spread going to people. So even when they do get exposed or um, sick with it, they may be not getting as sick because they're not getting as much of an exposure as they were before. Um, so there is something to the amount of viral spread that goes on. So I have a question and you might not have this answer, but you're probably the best person in the room that has the answer. <laughs> so say I start today running fever. I go get my test in two days. I get my positive. I have heard that like, so say today is a Wednesday. I got my fever. I should contact everyone I've been in contact for the 48 hours prior to my fever to let them know that they could have possibly been exposed. Is that 48 hours a good window of safety measures or is it bigger or is it smaller? What do you know about that? Yeah. And so, um, so I will say, you know, the CDC sort of recommendations are exactly what you said, you know? Um, so, so basically the thought is that you're, you certainly can still spread the virus while you're asymptomatic. And the thought is that that's probably highest in those two days prior to um, you actually getting symptoms of some sort. Um, it's probably not 100% perfect, but I think it's it's a pretty decent measure to look at and say um, that's probably when you're at the highest risk of exposure. You know, if you were if you wanted to be really conservative and and uh, and especially if you're around maybe some higher risk individuals, you know, maybe you take it back a few days even before that. But but this that is the CDC recommendation is you know tell everybody that you were in contact with the previous two days. Um, to, to when you got those symptoms, um, to let them know. And, and uh, this way they're advised that they could have been exposed to the, to the virus, actually. Okay, another question. When you say when you got those symptoms, is the symptoms when the fever starts or the symptoms could have been the sore throat, the allergy feeling? Like, it's Correct. So and, and so probably I'd say more of, yeah, the sore throat, the allergy feeling, you know, oh, I first started to notice something wasn't quite right because a fever may not be the first, you know, manifestation of, of your, of that disease. Right. So it could be that, Oh, I had a sore throat for a day before, and then I got a fever. And so really you got to think about when those symptoms, any symptoms really first started. And, uh, and you can tell that a little bit more in hindsight. Oh yeah. Really. I started to feel kind of bad on Monday, not, and then Tuesday I got the fever and that's when I got worried. It's hard. The cedar trees are blooming in Austin. Everyone's going Everybody's to be walking done. around paranoid <laughs> right now. It is tough. And I think that makes it really tricky with allergies. And uh, it it's, been a, it's been tough in our, you know, as, med as doctors, it's been tough because, you know, somebody calls, oh, I've got this sore throat and runny nose or whatever it's going on. Oh, okay. It might be allergies. Mm -hmm. uh, but now do I have to think about COVID-19 and, uh, do we bring them in here? You know, that kind of stuff. So those are, those are, those are big questions we have to think about constantly.
And I thought you were going somewhere different with that question. So I'll, I'll throw one at you that you may or may not have the full answer to. All right. So that day you feel the symptoms. Is it still recommended that you call someone before you go in or are there places go in and get tested? At what point should you get tested and how should you go about doing that? Um, so I think if you've got symptoms that you're concerned about, um, and of course that'd be, you know, shortness of breath, cough, fever, um, GI symptoms like diarrhea, body aches, um, those type of things, um, then I think that's something to be concerned about. Uh, there are certainly places around town um, that you can either drive up to, go to, to get testing, um, or that you can um, make appointments to, to get testing. Um, also, not a bad idea to call your, you know, your primary care doctor and call their office and discuss with them and if they have recommendations as well, if you've got those symptoms. And, and I think that would probably always be preferential because then at least you've got a medical professional you're, you're working with to, to figure out the, the diagnosis and what game plan. And then just in case it's not COVID-19, what are other things that could be going on as well? So, um, so I think that's preferable. Um, and then how long of a delay is there normally between when you might feel symptoms and when you start therapeutics? Because I think, you know, we all just saw the president, right, had symptoms and within a few days was feeling better because, man, they were on top of that. Yeah. He's got a whole staff surrounding him tending to that. What about, what about most people? What are they giving people like us? Yeah. And that's tough, you know, so, um, so I'll say where most of our data right now with COVID-19 is, is really in people sick enough to get admitted to the hospital, honestly. Right. The the things that have found to probably be the most effective so far are dexamethasone, steroids. Um, We know the president got, got steroids. Um, and so, um, so dexamethasone, there was a trial that was done in the United Kingdom where it showed an actual mortality benefit for people um, if they got steroids. And those were really for people who were already sick enough to require oxygen. Um, so for people who did not require oxygen, actually the steroids did not seem to be helpful and maybe actually slightly detrimental. So, so, um, so it would be, be, so it's better if, you know, or where we have the proof is that somebody's sick enough to be in the hospital and sick enough that their oxygen uh, requirement is such that they need supplemental oxygen. And, and that's where the steroids are most effective. Um, convalescent plasma, which is, which is something I was really involved with uh, during this pandemic, just as a hematologist, we deal with these blood products a lot. And so um, personally, I was, I was seeing a patient, uh, working, helping a patient uh, in the hospital, and uh, we found out a way to um, be able to get convalescent plasma, which is essentially um, collecting plasma from somebody who's already been sick with COVID-19 and has recovered. And we collect their plasma because it has presumably has those antibodies to fight off the infection. And then we give that plasma to the sick patient in the hospital. And so, um, so I was very involved and helped us get this program started in Austin um, to, to be able to work with our blood bank to collect convalescent plasma and then get that to patients uh, with COVID-19 in the hospitals. And uh, so, and we treated, you know, probably over 500 plus people with convalescent plasma in the Austin area um, as a result. And we, we worked with a big trial uh, through the Mayo Clinic um, that was run nationwide. And, and in that trial, they, they treated something like 60 or 70,000 people nationwide, you know, with convalescent plasma. 
And so, um, so ultimately that led um, to an FDA approval of convalescent plasma as a treatment for COVID-19. Um, there's still some, you know, discussions about pros and cons and things like that, but it is at this point a, um, a, a, an approved therapy to give. And so if people are sick enough again, requiring oxygen, if they were um, in the hospital, then convalescent plasma would be another treatment that we would potentially offer people at that point. Um, and then there's a medicine called remdesivir, uh, which is an antiviral medicine that's also approved. Um, and then, of course, there's all these other potential therapeutics that that have pos- you know have some excitement around them, but don't actually have true approval. Um, and so, those are things that we're you know still trying to learn more about. Um, you know, the president received a uh, basically a monoclonal antibody. So, kind of think of it the way I talked about the convalescent plasma, but think about just being able to identify the super duper antibodies that can fight COVID-19 and, and making that into a medicine, which is kind of what, what he kind of received. And, and so, um, so that looks promising. It still doesn't have a, it's still very, you know, still what I would consider experimental and, and is not something that's approved and not something that's available everywhere unless it was under some type of clinical trial right now. Um, but, but looks, you know, maybe potentially promising, but we'd have to learn more about it. And, and, uh, and then the one other therapeutic we think about still is probably blood thinner. Um, we know COVID-19, when people are sick, they have a much higher rate of getting blood clots, things like pulmonary embolism and DVTs and other things. And those, those have been uh, a big deal. So, so being on prophylactic blood thinner can be helpful as well during hospitalizations. For people in the, you know, not in the hospital, that's the big question. We, you know, the honest truth is we don't have any great yet medical approved things that look like they are extremely effective yet. And, and some of that's tricky because the vast majority of people who get diagnosed, well, it's a virus, they'll recover, you know, they'll get over it eventually and not have to get into the hospital and not get those things. And so, so it can be hard to prove, you know, something that's really effective in a, if, if you take a hundred people and 90 of them are going to do recover. Okay. And 10 of them are going to end up in the hospital. Um, it's going to be really hard to prove, you know, if I give those hundred people this medicine that, that we've made a difference. And so that's what's tricky on the outpatient setting and why, why most of the therapeutics have been really um, aimed at how do, you, how do you treat the sickest of the sick folks first and figure out how that works. But there's a lot of promise, the bottom line. Yeah, you know, I think what happened is you've got, and that's the amazing thing about the, you know, medical community, pharmaceutical community, is that, you know, all, all everything started to point towards this target and they everybody went to work on trying to figure out how do we attack this disease and what can we learn about it and what are new treatments we could offer for it. And if there's treatments we have that may have been effective before, you know, for are we used for other things, maybe they could be used for this. And and so um, so people started to work real hard to find these these answers. So I think that's where a lot of that promise comes for from. And then just the supportive care, I think, uh, improved as well. You know, just, you know, like anything, you know, if you, um, we've been treating, you know, uh, been treating lung cancer for years and years and years, right? And so we have lots of data and we have lots of information about different things that can happen. Um, so we have a lot of knowledge about something like that. COVID-19, we, have no, we had no knowledge about, you know, eight months ago or 10 months ago, and now we have more, but we still, we're still all learning, you know. We're, we're building the plane while we fly it. So, I want to go back a little bit to our schools because yeah. I feel like that's 
hugely important. It's on everybody's mind. It's on everybody's mind. We talked about colleges and what you thought was going on there. But let's talk about the high schools, the middle schools, and the elementary schools. Because as parents, we're like, you know, what do we do? And and I do get from my middle school that my sixth grader is in, since they've started back in person, they've only had two cases, which I think is great because it's a big school, I feel like. And then my ninth grader who's in high school, I, I'm not, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I feel like personally, I get an email from the school two to three times a week that there's a new case. Um, I don't know if that is a whole lot based on the number of students there, because I haven't personally done the research, but what do you feel is going on in our community amongst the different districts that are right here in Austin? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, so yeah, tough question to answer and, and figure out. And it's, it's a, a little hard. I'm trying to, trying to figure out how we can track that better or learn more about it. Um, and of course, not all the, di- you know, Every district's doing things a little bit differently. Every schools within districts are doing things a little differently on what in-person school looks like, you know, how much are they really doing, how little are they doing. And so that can be a little hard to always, you know, put it put a good summary on what's happening. Um, you know, I think what we're, you know, the as as a parent myself, I think I worry about kids not being in school for a long time, of course. You know, they're missing out on vital education and the vital socialization they oh, get. And the mental other, health of that is a big deal. Big, big problem. And so, and that's where, to me, I've always tried to say, how do we balance these things? How do we walk this rope between COVID-19 is real and it's a bad, bad disease. And I think we all need to accept that. And then we have to figure out how do we live with it and how do we figure out how to deal with it? Um, because it's not going to disappear in the next week or two. It's going to be around, you know, certainly for a long time. Um, perhaps we'll have better ways to prevent it, prevent it spread and treat it as time goes on. But it is a, it's a problem that we have to figure out how do we, you know, work into society and what, what's important to us and things. And so, so I've been one of those advocates of saying, yeah, I think we need to figure out how do we get kids back to school and, and do it in a safe manner. And, um, and, you know, I don't know that we have great data yet, but, you know, nationwide, you're seeing a little bit of, you know, first off, they thought schools are going to be these big super spreading locations where, you know, all of a sudden you'll have 500 cases in two weeks at schools and, and it'll start to spread to the community. Um, and, and they haven't really seen that quite as much. And I think some of that's due to a lot of the measures that schools put into place, right? Mask, distancing, trying to figure out ways to smart ways to do classes and and, um, maybe decrease number of kids that are in classes and and those types of things. And so I do think those, those measures are being very successful. And if we can do those types of things, then maybe we can prevent schools from being a place of spread and, and no, it's not going to be perfect that, you know, it's still stinks that every still stinks that my 11 year old has to go to school with a mask on and can't do quite the normal stuff, but it's better than, what she was doing otherwise, right? And so I think we have to accept it's not going to be totally normal, but can we do it at least to some extent where we get kids some of what they need? Um, and so hopefully that can be something we can continue to work on and do it in a smart way. And and to me, I think where you're probably seeing a lot of the spread is is more in the activities and places, not so much on campus, but on off-campus activities. Like I said, in colleges, probably a lot of the spread's been at parties or other places where those kind of protective measures aren't able to happen as much. 
Um, but perhaps at schools, we can really try to limit the types of spreads that go on, or at least that's the, that's what seems to be trending that direction. I don't know, you know, we'll have to get more and more data as time goes on, but. Um, I do feel like the schools are being safe. I mean, I, know I think they're working system. really hard. Yeah. yeah. I think they're working tremendously hard and I think they're doing a great job when, when kids do go back at, at trying to really prevent kids from and, and teachers from being exposed. And, and we've got a little, you know, evidence just from like in the medical community, we've got hospitals and clinics, right. That have been open for some time. And, you know, I'll see, um, I'll see 20 patients today. Right. And I see 20 patients every day. And, um, and most of those are going to be in-person interactions and, most of my, my, what we've noticed is our staff and, and other patients are not getting, we're not seeing spread within clinic walls, right? So we're, we're able to hopefully do this in a safe manner. I cannot prevent that the next patient that walks in the door got exposed three days ago and is actually asymptomatic with COVID-19. I have no idea. But what we can do is try to lower the chance that if they are here, they can spread that to other people. And, and so, and, and that seems to have been successful so far where we're not seeing these big spreading events happen in places like that. And, and hopefully it's things, you know, practice like that can translate to schools as well. And, it, and that seems to be the case if they, if they can do it, you know. Right. right. Well, and you started this by saying it's all about balance. I think even balancing the fear with feeling Completely. like we can handle the situation. Yeah. And to me, that's it. We got to, how do we take this situation and how do we, you know, that's where I say it's like, we must accept that this is real because right. denying it is not a smart thing. Cause I think that's, that's just us feeling like it's not a big deal. And I, I do think COVID-19 is real and it's a bad disease. Um, but we can't stay in a shell forever and ever. And we can't hide away from life forever and ever because that has also huge ramifications. Um, whether that's, you know, people staying at home to have their heart attack and not coming to the hospital, or it's, you know, the 10 year old who needs to be in school and doesn't get that education and that for a whole year and what's going to happen the rest of their life because they didn't get that, um, the, what they needed this year and how behind are they going to be or what are those ramifications? And, and so how do we, how do we try to balance things out? You know, I think that's what we, as humans, we have to adapt and figure out how to make it work. Yeah, for sure. So okay. speaking of balance. Yeah. <laughs> so what we like to ask all of our guests at the end or towards the end of the podcast is what do you do personally on a daily basis? Or and, regular or basis. Or regular basis. Doesn't have to be daily. We found that sometimes that's harder to get in. What do you do to get balance in your life? Oh, good question. <laughs> so, yeah, as a doctor, uh, yeah, balance is probably not one of our better uh better traits because <laughs> we all work a lot um so you know i uh, um i like to run so i try to run uh at least a few times a week i'm you know uh usually i can do that um not i'm not so good every day but at least you know at least three or four times a week try to get that in for some balance um try to try to always devote some family time um, for sure, um, try to really carve out weekends to, to devote more of that family time if I can. Um, and then, um, you know, other things I do, I like to play the guitar. So I balance that, balance myself off by, by doing that, you know, even, even if it's for five minutes in a day or something, just to, to get that kind of, uh, you know, um, or where I don't have to think about other things or some sort of mind escape. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Well, and we always say, like, I'm a huge proponent of meditation. And when people say they don't have time, I'm a fan of the three-minute meditation, or you mentioned the five minutes of guitar. So we say, you know what, three or five minutes is a whole lot more than zero. Yeah. 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 And I'm in, uh, I have a hard time sitting, as we discussed. (laughs) So I'm an avid meditation runner, right? I like to run and be very mindful because once I get done with that, I feel it's cleared my mind completely because I really focused on whatever my intention was to focus on during that run. Yeah. No, that's great. And, and I, I agree. I think running is always one of those where you can sort of sort of escape and, and try to, you know, uh, yeah. put, put everything out, put all the outside noise out of the way for, for at least, you know, 30 minutes or whatever it is. Yeah. Whatever we can get in, right? Whatever we can get in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. thank you so much for joining us today. I think this has been very helpful and informative to our community. And um, I think we've put a lot of information out there today. Hopefully people will find it useful and helpful. Yes. So thank you very much. Yeah. Everybody for watching and or listening to the Invive Live podcast today and our conversation that we got to have with Dr. Jeff Uria. So thank thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Of course. (laughs) All right. You guys have a good one. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to the InVibe Life podcast. For more information and to join our community, be sure and check out our website at www.invibelife.com. We look forward to sharing with you.